0: I'm Alice Su, The Economist's Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here with The Economist Tokyo Bureau Chief, Noah Snyder, for the second of a two-part series on China and Japan. More than a decade ago, Japan saw that China was becoming a threat to regional security. It sounded the alarm, but it took America and the rest of the West years to catch up. This week, we're going to meet someone who had dedicated his life to building friendship between Japan and China until he became a target of China's security services. We're asking, how is Japan changing its approach to China as China itself changes under Xi Jinping? And is there anything the West can learn from the way Japan deals with China now? This is Drum Tower from The Economist. Hello, Noah. Welcome back to Drum Tower.
1: Hey, Alice. Good to see you again.
0: How are things going in Tokyo? I know you were saying it was going to get really hot in the summer.
1: We're getting there. We just passed through the rainy season to you. Now we're entering the hot season. And every time I go through this cycle, I'm not sure which one I I dislike more. (laughs) I'm waiting for the fall, basically.
0: Wait, is there an official name for the rainy season?
1: To it's the, uh, the ah. rainy season in Japan. It's not quite a monsoon season, but huh. you, you better have an umbrella wherever you go.
0: So I'll, I'll wait until the heat is over and I'll come back in the fall, hopefully.
1: Sounds great. Uh, we'd love to have you back in Tokyo anytime.
0: Yeah. So last week on Drum Tower, we were talking about how Japan and China's relationship has changed. We went all the way back to World War II, Japan invading China, And then we talked through how Japan had this post-war guilt and how Japanese businesses went to help China develop. Then we reached that moment where there's a flip in the power dynamic and China becomes a larger, stronger economy and starts using its economic clout and its military power to pressure its neighbors. If any listeners haven't heard that episode, do go back and listen. But as we were talking about NOAA, a lot of this was happening before Xi Jinping came into power in 2012 and 2013. And after Xi Jinping became president and the head of the Communist Party, he really started to change China from the inside.
1: Yeah, and I think for Japan, what you've seen happen during the Xi era is an attempt to balance its economic interests and the importance of China's economy for Japan's economy with these growing concerns about security interests. And and you saw former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo try to rebuild relations with China and relations with Xi after the Senkaku crises and try and strike that balance. But it's been getting harder and harder and harder.
0: So when I was in Tokyo, we met with somebody who has experienced this shift in the security environment firsthand. His name is Suzuki Hideji, and he was once the head of the Japan-China Youth Exchange Association. He came to the economist's office in Tokyo, he was wearing a, a gray suit, I remember, and bring like a little box of snacks to share with us and a copy of his book about his experience, which is why we wanted to talk to him. So Mr. Suzuki was very interesting because he is somebody who was very, very much a proponent of closer ties between Japan and China. And he told us about how the first time he ever went to China was all the way back in 1983. And when he went... He went to visit a place in Dongbei in northeastern China where Japanese soldiers had done chemical experiments on Chinese people. And he actually met some of the survivors in that place.
1: He told us in particular about visiting the the headquarters of Unit
2: 731. Uh
1: This infamous Japanese unit in Harbin in the north of China, he remembered going to the laboratory and this incineration chamber where where people were burned. He talked about meeting some of the the survivors who were already quite old at the time and told him stories about the conditions uh, that they were held in, about the experiments that were conducted on them, about how people died in these really horrific ways. And he talked also about the sense of guilt he felt as a Japanese person visiting this site.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, I was really struck by how Suzuki just emphasized his, not just his interest, but kind of his personal passion for history. And he kept saying to us, we need to confront what happened here in Asia in the past. We need to confront Japan's responsibility for it. And it seemed like that really motivated him to try to do something to, you know, build peace or improve relations between Japan and China, basically to make sure that these kinds of atrocities never happen again.
1: And that's exactly what he spent a lot of his life doing, trying to build friendship between China and Japan. And he managed, in fact, to make friends of his own with a lot of key figures in China and in particular in the Communist Youth League, even folks like Li Chang. And he started organizing these exchanges um, between the two countries and between sort of leftist parties and leftist student groups in Japan and those in China.
0: Yeah, that was very interesting. We had a whole episode about Li Keqiang, China's former premier, and we talk about the Communist Youth League there and how it used to be kind of a very powerful political force in China. So Suzuki... He was motivated by history, but he made very good connections in China. And and when we were talking, I remember, Noah, you asked him how he felt, you know, during the disputes over the Senkaku Islands or Diao Dao, or during the anti-Japanese protests that would happen in China from time to time. And he told us how actually he said he would take China's side. He said, I think we haven't done enough in Japan. We haven't really faced our history and we need to do more and we need to recognize our historical wrongs so I can understand why Chinese people are angry. I was actually kind of surprised that he said that. What I understood from him was just that he was really, really uh, you know, a true believer in righting those wrongs and engagement no matter what. But even he saw that things were starting to change under Xi Jinping. He saw that the party was centralizing power and it was cracking down on civil society, trying to eliminate foreign influences and, and just becoming increasingly obsessed
2: with security.
1: Exactly. And in 2016,
2: Suzuki-san got caught up in that directly.
1: So he told us this really crazy story. I mean, he talks about going to the airport on what he thought would be a a pretty routine trip, getting out of his cab and finding a bunch of intimidating-looking men waiting
2: for him. Shove him
1: into a car. take his luggage, and he's
2: totally stunned.
1: It's the first time he's ever encountered this in his years in China and he asked them, Who are you? and they tell him that we're from the Municipal Bureau of State Security. He asked them why they're doing this and they tell him that you're suspected of, of espionage and you're being arrested.
0: Yeah, and then after that, Suzuki he pulled out a piece of paper and he had this illustration. Uh, if you remember, no, he had this illustration of this room where he was kept. And he described something that actually I've heard many times before from Chinese activists or dissidents. Basically, he was kept in something called residential surveillance at a designated location. It's a pre-trial black jail detention. And he was in there for seven months.
2: Yeah,
1: and he kind of walked us through life inside that room in his sketch, um, showing us where there was a toilet with no doors and two guards watching over him 24 hours a day, these curtains that never open, cameras keeping track of his every movement, no clocks, no TVs, no papers, no pens, absolutely nothing, just complete isolation and surveillance for seven months.
0: Yeah, and I remember asking him, it's kind of ironic, because you're somebody who was so strongly promoting Japan-China friendship, and you had very good, very powerful friends in China. And I asked him, like, were you able to try to get help from any of those friends? And he said, like, no, of course not. You have no contact with the outside world. It's like, he's living in this world of exchanges, and then suddenly, he's deep in the security state, and he has no power. And after those seven months of residential surveillance, He was sentenced to six years of prison, and Suzuki was formally charged with being an agent of foreign intelligence, so basically espionage, even though he insists that he did nothing of the sort.
1: And it's a really difficult story to untangle. I mean, difficult to understand why this happened to him. And there are a number of possible explanations, and it might partly be connected to sort of internal struggles Mm -hmm. within China. Youth League. Exactly. His powerful friends stopped being the right powerful friends. But it also looked like it might be connected to the broader relationship and there might be some signaling going on through his arrests. And his case really becomes the first of many. In the ensuing years, there are a number of Japanese who are detained in China, scholars, business people, and most recently a, a very senior Japanese executive at a pharmaceutical company who also was involved for decades in building trade ties between Japan and China. So his case turned out, you know, not to be an outlier, but a real kind of portend of things to come.
0: Yeah, I was really struck by that actually when we were going around talking to people in Tokyo. I noticed that it seemed like all of the serious China scholars were not going to China anymore. And they were all saying that they stopped going after a Japanese scholar got detained a few years ago. And then people in the business community were also telling us that they had been going to China up until COVID. And now China's borders are open so they can go again. But the recent detention of this executive from the pharma company as Stella's has really been giving people a lot of second thoughts.
1: And that's a big shift. I mean, I think the business community is the last domino to fall, and they were the ones who kept going and kept on exchanging goods, money, but also people. And now there's a lot of hesitancy, a lot of concern, just about sort of fundamental safety in doing that. And that spills over into the rest of the relationship, because those kinds of exchanges and the trade ties, they have a stabilizing effect, and they act as these kind of additional channels to sort of understand each other and It's worrying, of course.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's actually something that I found also very striking from our conversation with Suzuki, because I remember I asked him, like, you know, do you still believe in friendship? (laughs) Like after all these years, like initially, you know, you felt all this shame about what Japan had done in the past. You were such a big, you know, promoter of exchanges, but then you got detained. And he told us about how he, he realized he was naive in the past about human rights or maybe willfully naive until he personally experienced total, you know, violation of his human rights. But he actually said Xi Jinping's China is completely different and we need to recognize that. We need to be clear-eyed about the dangers of detention, about why it really matters that you know human rights are not respected in China today, but at the same time we still have to be
2: friends. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and he used this Japanese saying which translates basically to the, the stranger next door is more important than the distant relative. So basically that you have to make an effort to get along with the people who live right nearby. And that's kind of the dilemma that Japan finds itself in. Uh, it has a neighbor that is becoming increasingly difficult to get along with, but it can't change its place on the map. It can't just pick up and move.
0: Yeah. And that sentiment is definitely something many people here in Taiwan, where I am, can relate to, you know, this idea that your neighbors might be putting you in danger, but you are stuck in this geographical location. And so you you have to find a way to live with
1: them. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: Yeah. But, you know, I, I think another reason why Suzuki's story really matters is because it illustrates how... China itself is changing internally, right? Under Xi Jinping, it's becoming a place that is much more security obsessed, security focused, and it's becoming much more hostile to people like Suzuki, you know, people who speak good Chinese, who are really trying to understand China and get close to China, and who have the capacity to make high level friends. And these types of people and these types of relationships are also very important, right? Because they have this buffering effect when there is so much risk of confrontation and conflict in the region. But now China's domestic politics are making it impossible. They're making it dangerous and making it scary for real friends of China to go and spend time there. And I think that that really bodes ill for the region.
1: Yeah, and I think that really sort of feeds into the sense that I get, certainly sitting here in in Japan, um, that people are are worried about the state of of communications, just the, the sort of basic channels of communications between Japan and China, between China and America. And that however fiercely, you might oppose, as Japan does, threats to Taiwan, expansionism in the South China Sea, any of the the many human rights violations that you've discussed uh, on Drum Tower in, in recent weeks, that even with all of that, you still have to keep talking. And there have been some signs of steps in the right direction in recent months. I mean, Japanese officials, for example, visiting China and talking with their counterparts, and even the Japanese military and the Chinese military establishing a Kind of a crisis hotline. It's something they've been talking about for years, really, but only got up and running in the last few months.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a pretty big deal. I mean, I know that the US has a hotline and had a system of regular military to military contact, but all those channels have been frozen since the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan last summer. And I know that's something that the U.S. is pushing very hard to resume, but China has so far refused to reopen those channels. They want the U.S. to lift sanctions, including sanctions on the new Chinese defense minister over arms purchases from Russia. So I think it is encouraging that at least Japan can make progress on this.
1: Yeah. And the big question really is, how enduring that progress is, how real that progress is, and whether Japan will be able to strike a balance and find a way of competing with, pushing back against, but also coexisting with Xi's China.
0: We'll come back to that in a moment, but first we wanted to remind listeners that you can read much more about China and Japan in The Economist. You will need to be a subscriber, so if you're not already, we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more.
3: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you.
0: Japan-China history, we've gone back to the last war and, and looked at all the ways that the two countries have been dealing with each other leading up to Xi Jinping, and we've just been talking about how much China has changed under sea and how that itself makes dialogue and people-to-people exchanges so much more difficult. But I want to ask you a question now. I think what I'm really wondering is, does Japan have a vision of its own for a way forward with China and, and how does the Japanese vision, if you will, you know, differ from that of America or of some of the other Western countries?
1: It's a great question, Alice. And I think part of what's happened in recent years is the convergence in the perceptions of China. So, you know, we talked a bit about in the beginning of the episode about how Japan's perception of China was quite different from America's or from the West a decade or more ago. And so now I think in many ways, they're closer than ever before. But when it comes to sort of how to deal with China, or maybe even how to talk about dealing with China, I think there are some subtle differences that are important and illuminating. And I had an interview with Prime Minister Kishida, ahead of the G7 summit here, um, just a little bit before your trip to Tokyo as well. And the way he describes his vision for the relationship with China is constructive and stable. And that's kind of political, diplomatic speak for finding an equilibrium. So I think it's boosting deterrence and making it clear that Japan and its allies won't be pushed around in the region on the one hand, but also engaging in sort of proactive diplomacy, however hard that might be.
0: Hmm. And was there anything that he said or anything you know, you've gathered from your reporting that is kind of a lesson from Japan that perhaps America or other countries could benefit
3: from?
1: Well, I think the message I'm picking up in conversations with Japanese diplomats and Japanese officials, if 10 years ago they were saying, as Ambassador Sasaya recounted to us, that the temperature in Washington was too cold, that people just didn't get it when it came to China. Now I think what they're saying is the temperature's gotten a little bit too hot, that the rhetoric has gotten just a little bit too intense, and that the politicization of the relationship with China in America and the politicization of the relationship with America in China has created this real sort of unstable situation. And so I think what Japan is trying to urge is recognition of the risks and efforts to bring things back to a calmer temperature, even if we're not seeing eye to eye, even if we're not going to sort of fundamentally get along, we have to find a way to live next to each other, uh, hopefully in peace.
0: Yeah. And to be clear, that doesn't at all mean letting up on deterrence or reversing the course on economic security or de-risking or any of that. Japan is still totally on board with all of that, but they're just saying kind of... The way we do it should not be so heated.
1: Exactly. It's the speak softly and carry a big stick approach. You've got to make it clear exactly that you're not capitulating, that you're not giving in, but at the same time, not unnecessarily stoke the tensions.
0: So Noah, apart from my own questions, I actually had a question from one of our listeners that I wanted to get your take on. It comes from Alex, who sent in a voice note to the Drum Tower inbox.
1: Hi, Drum Tower team. My name is Alex, and I'm a student living in the U.S. I've just finished listening to your episode on the Born to Fly movie. The protagonist, who's a PLA Air Force pilot, is in his 20s, as am I. The thought that I might be in a generation that has to deal with the hostile China scares me. I never thought I'd experience living in a situation like the Cold War or even World War II. These periods have always felt like a long-gone era that would never happen again. Yet, when I study Japanese history and see imperial Japan's nationalism, military growth, feelings of humiliation and resentment towards the West, it really feels like I'm looking at today's China as well. Is this a fair comparison? Can there be any lessons learned? Thank you guys so much for an amazing podcast.
0: Alex, thank you so much for sending in your question. So, Noah... What do you make of what Alex is asking from your vantage point in Tokyo? Do you hear people making this comparison between pre-war Japan and China today?
1: Absolutely. It just brings to mind a trip I took to Japan, sort of in preparation for moving here to work for The Economist. This was back in 2019. And I met with a man who was a longtime advisor to prime ministers, and he made exactly that point. It's one I've heard sort of subsequently from former Japanese diplomats, from current officials. And I think I've seen just in my own experience, my own mini version of this transition happen. Because I remember in that, that first conversation in 2019 thinking this has got to be a bit exaggerated. I mean, he's blowing things out of proportion. To say that. To say that. I mean, to make that comparison. That it seemed to me at the time, and this is maybe how it seemed to American officials back in 2010, 2012, that this was kind of Japanese complaining about their neighbors um, who they have this long and painful history with. But the longer I've spent in the region and the more time I've spent reading your coverage and, and our colleagues in China's great coverage, the more... Eerily resonant those comparisons have started to be.
0: Yeah, it's really striking. And it's funny because I kind of come at it from a different perspective. Like my focus has been China. I've been covering China for such a long time and, and lived in China growing up. And it's only maybe in the last year or two, I started reading up a lot about Japanese history and um, what the mood was like in the buildup to Japanese expansionism and imperialism. And I recognized so many things that just seemed so familiar the nationalism, the idea of, you know, the West is keeping us down, you know, we are the rightful Asian leaders of Asia coming from the other side. It is also striking to me and really worrying. But that is also why I think it's so beneficial to have you here with us and to be looking at China from multiple perspectives, not just from in China, not just from, say, the US or from London, but from other parts of the region and from other countries that have lessons not only in how to deal with China, but also perhaps lessons for China itself. And with that, Noah, thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alice. I've learned a ton doing the reporting with you here in Tokyo and doing this podcast. I hope we can continue the China-Japan Economist Friendship Association, if not, the, uh, if not the, the grand political one.
0: Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, remember, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at drum@economist.com. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. We will be back next week. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burl and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Wei Dong Lin. Our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.
3: Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket?